Hello to everyone. We're thankful to be back. Another time, another opportunity to study and look into the Word of God. Uh, thankful for all that God's allowed us to do for Him in this life. Thankful to be saved. Certainly without, without His working in our life, His salvation, His Spirit, Him changing the course and direction of our life, uh, we would have had no interest in doing anything like this. But thank God that He saved us. Thank God for, for how that He uses us. And we hope that we can be a help to you. So we've been looking at Elijah. We're in 1 Kings chapter 18, if you're in a place where you can follow along with us. And last time, um, Elijah had went up to Carmel to pray. We looked at his posture. He was bowed with his face to the earth in humbleness in worship, in reverence, and in shame, in desire. His heart is there to seek God. And so he bows his face to the earth. And we looked at the importance and the weight of prayer. And so now we'll pick up in verse 43, 1 Kings chapter 18, verse number 43. So he's bowed and he said to his servant, Go up now, look toward the sea. And he went up and looked and said, There is nothing. And he said, Go again seven times. So it looks like Elijah is up on the mountain and he's praying unto God. And he's got his servant with him and he sends his servant to look and see if God has answered. If there's any sign in the heavens that the rain is coming. And he goes one time and there was no rain. Now, a lot of times we pray that one time and there we give up, but that's not the case. Elijah's going to send him seven times until there's a, 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 an answer given from God till he can see the answer that God's gave. Well, how often ought we to pray? Well, we pray one time about it and we just leave it at that. And, you know, that, that's the carnal mind. That's the thinking of man. That's not how Elijah did. And that seven times, does that mean I ought to pray seven times about everything and leave it at that? Again, it's, it's the spiritual meaning behind it. Paul didn't pray seven times about the thorn in his flesh. He prayed three times. But he prayed till he got an answer from God. And here... Elijah's going to pray till he gets an answer from God, and it's seven. And seven is that number of completion, of perfection. And how long did Elijah pray? He prayed till the prayer was complete. And the prayer was completed when God answered from heaven. Now, I realize we, we get discouraged, maybe. Maybe we get weary of praying. Maybe we think it's not necessary to pray. But in Luke chapter number 18, the Lord knew that about us. He knew the nature of the flesh. Remember, the Lord had a flesh likened unto mine and unto yours. And in Luke 18 verse 1, this is very familiar scripture, and he spake a parable unto them to this end, that men ought to always pray and not to faint. So ought, that word ought there, it's O-U-G-H-T. That word, if you look it up in Strong's Concordance, it means 
It is necessary. So the Lord Jesus is going to speak a parable to this end to give me and to give you this message that it's necessary that we always pray and not faint. That word means to relax or to loosen up. I think often we pray one time and we relax and loosen up and we don't pray any longer. Well, men ought to always pray. How long ought we to pray until we see the answer of the prayer? We ought to make our requests and our supplications known unto God and not relax and not faint in our prayer. In Ephesians chapter number 6, Ephesians chapter number 6, verse 18. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. So he says praying always, and then on down with all perseverance. That's enduring. That's lasting. That's staying with it and not giving up. That's not feigning, as the Lord would say. So uh, we know in Galatians, he says, be not weary in well-doing. Well, the devil would like to make you think there's no point in continuing to pray. You've prayed one time and God didn't answer. He's just not going to. You prayed twice and God didn't answer. He's just not going to. Well, you think about Elijah up there on the mountain. How easy would that have been in the flesh to say those very words and say, well, it'll come to pass one way or another. And I'm afraid a lot of times that's the way we think. And what that is, is that's loosening. That's relaxing. Remember, that's the word for faint. We're loosening. We're relaxing the burden and the need for us to pray. We're casting that off of us that we wouldn't have to labor, that we wouldn't have any part that we need to do. We're just going to allow God to do all of that. Well, God commands us to pray. Elijah, the man of God, following God's commandment, uh, the same God that promised rain was coming. Elijah's going to pray seven times till he sees the answer that's given. In Hebrews chapter 10, and here I believe we can see uh, as well, Hebrews 10 verse 36, For ye have need of patience. Cheerful endurance is what patience means. That after ye have done the will of God, ye might receive the promise. For yet a little while, and he that shall come will come, and will not tarry. The Lord's coming. God is attentive to the prayers of his people. God hears us when we pray. Does that mean we just pray one time and cease and say, well, I've prayed about that already. I'm not going to pray about it anymore. Not till we get an answer. Daniel prayed one time and he prayed 21 days. He was on his face for 21 days praying and making supplication unto God. And God came and said, I heard you the first day. But why didn't God answer? He was showing through Daniel, through his perseverance, through his endurance, that Daniel was a man that meant and intended to get a hold of God. 
Jesus there in Luke 18. He's going to give them the parable of the unjust judge. God's not an unjust and lawless judge. God will avenge his elect speedily. That's what the Bible says. Though he may tarry with them. So we know God hears the prayers of the saints. But God asks us in his word to pray and not faint. May God help us to pray. And if we get anything out of this, remember this. It is important. It is, as Jesus said, it is necessary that men pray always and not relax. Don't relax the restraint, the burden, and the need of prayer for everything in our life. I believe God would be pleased for us to pray about every portion of our life, that we might seek Him, His blessing, His will, His guidance in all that we would do, in all that we would say, that His hand would be with us and help us by His great power. Elijah's going to pray seven times, and the seventh time, that number of completion. And it came to pass at the seventh time, that he said, behold. That's a beautiful word. It's all through the Bible. Behold, there ariseth a little cloud out of the sea like a man's hand. So little, that means diminutive or insignificant. And hand, he's talking about the palm of a man's hand. So the servant goes the seventh time and he looks and he says, Elijah, Look, behold, I see a little cloud. Now it's just a little bitty thing and it doesn't look like much. It doesn't look like that anything can come out of that. It's just about the size of your palm that's out over the sea. Now, what would you think of that? Well, it don't look like anything's going to come of this. But Elijah says, Go up, say unto Ahab, prepare thy chariot and get thee down, that the rain stop thee not. It didn't matter that it looked and appeared to be diminutive or insignificant to man. This was the answer of God. And friends, when God answers, when God moves, it'll always be, no matter what the flesh thinks, It'll always be the right thing. In Isaiah 53, you know what they thought of the Lord here? In Isaiah 53, He shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. You know what the Lord's going to appear to be? A little tender plant that there's no strength, there's no power, there's no ability in whatsoever and he's just a root out of dry ground. He's sprung up out of a place where there's no hope of him ever making anything. So the Lord appears to be nothing, but we know what the Lord was. He was God in the flesh, and he came to accomplish a work that's absolutely impossible by the strength and by the ability of man. And no doubt they thought the same thing of Paul as well. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2 that I was with you in weakness 
and in fear and in much trembling. And again in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 10, his letters say they are weighty and powerful, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech contemptible. Why, this man Paul, he writes these big letters, but when he's here, he's just weak. His speech is nothing. He's just a little nothing and nothing good's gonna come from him. But the power of God was working in Paul. And though outwardly it looked insignificant and it looked diminutive, yet the power of God was able to bring great works out of that little weak and insignificant man, Paul the Apostle. And so in Job chapter 8, verse number 7, Though thy beginning was small, yet thy latter end should greatly increase. And that's the way God works. The cloud's going to start out small, but God is going to greatly increase it. Gideon went to war with 300 men, a small, insignificant number compared to the armies. Uh, that was against them. And yet God took that number, greatly increased them, and wrought a great slaughter of the enemy. They had a great army at Hezekiah's door in Jerusalem one day, and Jerusalem looked insignificant and weak and diminutive before the strength of Sennacherib's army, and yet God come through and wrought a great victory. The Lord Jesus, a man of weakness, a man uh, that was poor, a man that didn't have a place to lay his head, and that was cast before the Romans, and the Romans crucified him by the desire of the Jews, and he looked like a weak nothing. And yet God wrought the greatest victory that's ever been wrought through that man Jesus Christ. And in Daniel chapter 2, you can see an Old Testament picture of Daniel uh, of Jesus in Daniel chapter 2 as that stone that's hewn out of the mountain comes down and rolls over every kingdom that there was on the face of the earth. Though this Christianity, you know how this started? It started with one man, a weak little man, a root out of dry ground, one that was contemptible, one that was weak, one that was despised and rejected of men and of his own people, one that they crucified and put to death because they saw him as treacherous and a traitor to the nation, and uh, they, they called him evil, and they hung him there with the, the, the malefactors. They hung him there with the convicted felons. And yet the greatest kingdom that's ever been on the face of the earth and that's going to overcome everything on the earth began with that little root out of dry ground. That grew from Jesus and his resurrection to 12 men. And in just a few days, that's going to grow to 120 there in the upper room. And from there to day of Pentecost, it's going to go to 3,120. In just a few more days, 5,000 more is going to be added. And the church is going to grow and it's going to be persecuted. It's going to be, uh, the man's going to try to hinder it, but it's going to spread over the face of the whole earth. And here we are 2,000 years later, the kingdom of the Lord Jesus is still ongoing and every kingdom that was at that time has ended.
So, though insignificant, and that's the way they look at the church and the gospel today. Men that preach the gospel, they're weak, they're ignorant, they're wasting their time, their effort, They've got no strength. They've got no ability. The church, the church is dying out. There's not going to be a church any longer. We're going to stamp the church. We're going to stamp the gospel. We're going to get rid of the word of God. That's, that's the attempt that our world system, that our governments, that's what they're trying to do today. They are working towards that end, even if they don't realize it or intend it at this time. That's the direction that things are going in today. But they will not be able to stamp out the kingdom of God, though it looks small and insignificant. It will be that that rises out of the fire and out of the judgment. So, though small, though insignificant, though weak, though it looks as if it's nothing, this cloud is going to bring the abundance of rain that God promised. Just as the Lord Jesus Christ brought the abundant salvation and victory that the Lord brought, though he was small and insignificant in the eyes of men. And so he tells his servant, go tell Ahab to get down from the mountain and head towards Jezreel or this rain's going to bring an end. It's going to stop you. You're not going to be able to travel in it. So verse 45. And it came to pass in the meanwhile that the heaven was black with clouds and wind and there was a great rain. And Ahab rode and went to Jezreel and the hand of the Lord was on Elijah and he girded up his loins and ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. So you talk about a man that's got the witness of God's power upon him. A man that God has testified beyond any question, beyond any doubt that this man is a man of God and that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the true God. Elijah's that man. He has shut up the heavens and it didn't rain. He raised a dead boy down in Zarephath. He came back and he prayed and God answered with miraculous fire and the prophets of Baal were slain. And now he's prayed and after three and a half years where there wasn't even dew, there's rain at his word. God has greatly proven that this man was a man of God. In Deuteronomy 18, he tells us this, how to determine whether a man's a prophet or not. In Deuteronomy 18, in verse 22, when a prophet speaketh in the name of the Lord, if the thing fall not, nor come to pass, that is the thing which the Lord hath not spoken. But the prophet that hath spoken it presumptuously, thou shalt not be afraid of him. So God says the man that makes prophecies and they never come to pass, you don't need to worry about that man because he's not speaking on the behalf of God. 
He's speaking presumptuously according to his thought, his will, and his desire. But boy, the prophet that speaks and it comes to pass, we had better look to and hear that man. God's bore witness to what he has said through Elijah and that Elijah was a man of God. So Ahab is writing back to Jezreel and he's writing in, as the Bible says, a great rain. So three and a half years, no rain, and now he's riding back to Jezreel where his palace is in a great rain. And now what a story. Now you think about this. Ahab's going back to Jezreel to his palace where Jezebel is. And what a story that Ahab has to tell Jezebel. Now no doubt Jezebel's looking out the window. She can see it's raining. She can see that God has allowed it to rain after three and a half years. And you think about how people must have reacted to this. What joy, what rejoicing, what happiness that there was in the people's hearts that God had now sent rain. That the heavens were opened up and the blessing of God was being poured out again. Great joy all throughout the land. But Ahab's going back and he's got a story to tell her. He's, he's got the contest up on the mountain. The fire that God answered with on Elijah's prayer. How that the prophets of Baal, they cried and they prayed and they cut themselves and nothing ever happened. And Elijah got up there by himself and prayed and fire fell down out of heaven and consumed even the stones and the water and the dust of the ground. That was there. And then Elijah went up on the mountain and he prayed and he come down and said, I better get back, it's about to rain. And when I looked around, I didn't see nothing in the sky. And then all of a sudden, there was an abundance of rain. And you can look out and see it right now. My God, what a story that Ahab's got to tell. He says this in Habakkuk. Now he's talking about judgment here. In chapter 1, verse 5, Behold ye among the heathen and regard and wonder marvelously, for I will work a work in your days which you will not believe, though it be told you. A work that you're going to hear about, that's going to be told you, that witnesses are going to tell you about, and yet it's going to be such a great work that you're just not going to be able to believe it. That you think about, put yourself in Jezebel's shoes here, and Ahab comes home, it's raining for the first time in three and a half years, he tells you everything that's happened, how easy is that going to be to believe? Hmm, what a work God did on the mountain there. But you think about now the Lord Jesus Christ, and he says this, I believe it's in Timothy, I don't have this wrote down, but I believe he says it in 1 Timothy the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Yet, yeah, 1 Timothy 3, verse 16, without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. So you think about the story of the Lord Jesus. Here's a man that was born to a woman that was a virgin. Here's a man that lived a life that was perfect in every facet that you can imagine. 
Here's a man that was despised and rejected, though he wrought all of these miracles, the blind seeing, the deaf hearing, the lame walking, lepers being cleansed, and dead raised from the ground. He was still despised, and he was crucified as a criminal in Jerusalem. And yet, three days later, this man raises from the dead. He was God dwelling with man in the flesh, and he came to be the substitution for man, that man's sins could be done away with, and that man could be right in God's eyes, and that by faith in him and in his work, we can be saved from the very wrath and damnation of our sins from God. Now that's hard to believe. Though eyewitnesses tell us what happened, that's just hard for man to lay hold of and believe. It's going to be hard for Jezebel to believe. Matter of fact, she's not going to believe it. Isn't that something that God's going to work a work this mighty and Jezebel is not going to believe it? But that's exactly what was going to happen. And so in chapter 19, we see Ahab's going to come back to Jezreel where Jezebel is. And in this chapter, we're going to see the humanity of Elijah. Now, I tell you, you read chapter 17 and chapter 18 of Kings and think about what a man that this man Elijah is. My gosh, a man of faith, a man of power, a man of authority that in mine, in my eyes is unreal. How unreal it would be for a man like Elijah to be alive today with the power of God on his life as it was Elijah. And yet this he was a man and he was weak in the flesh just exactly like you and I are. In James chapter 5, verse number 17, Elias was a man subject to like passions as we are. And certainly Elijah was. He was a man. And that's what's so beautiful about this story, about the apostle Peter. You know, Peter gets a bad rap because he denied the Lord Jesus. And I, I understand that. That was wrong. But that shows me that Peter was a man just exactly like I'm a man. And Elijah here, we're going to see that he's a man just exactly like I am. It's by the grace of God that we're anything. But in, in verse 1 and 2, we'll just read. Maybe we'll cover these two verses and we'll stop for today. And Ahab, so Ahab has rode back now in the rain. He gets back to his palace. And Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, and withal how he had slain all the prophets with a sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger unto Elijah, saying, So let the gods do to me, and more also, if I make not thy life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. 
Now you think about what she just said, and I realize everybody knows this story, and we've heard all this before, but think about the hardness that's present right here in her heart, her reaction to everything that's been done. Here's a man that can shut the heavens up that it wouldn't rain for three and a half years, no rain or dew. Here's a man that called fire down that devoured stones, water, and dust, and I'm going to kill that man? Think about how foolish a thought that that is. But that is the hardness of man's heart. So in Exodus chapter 10, we've got the account of Pharaoh. And I, I've talked about this previous. This always has been, this is astounding to think about. In verse 27, But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let them go. And Pharaoh said unto him, Get thee from me. Take heed to thyself. See my face no more. For in the day that thou seest my face, thou shalt die. Now he's speaking to Moses, a man who to this point has brought nine plagues upon the land of Egypt and truly absolutely destroyed their livestock and their agriculture and the fish that was in their river. I mean, we're talking works that caused great destruction and suffering on the land of Egypt. And he's going to look at Moses and say, I'm going to kill you. And in just a little while... He's going to let the people go. And God's going to part the Red Sea. And Pharaoh's going to look from the land down into the sea. It parted and stacked on each side and say, I'm going to go through that just like the children of Israel are going through that with no consideration in the mind of the power that God's exhibited by parting the waters. God's called down fire from heaven that devoured water and stones and Jezebel's not thinking about that. She's angry that her prophets of Baal, her liars, have been killed. And I'm going to kill him in 2 Kings. 2 Kings chapter 19, verse number 10. Here's Rabshakeh. Now he's the servant of Sennacherib the king we've talked about here just in the last study or two, that came upon Israel, that came upon Judah and Jerusalem when Hezekiah was the king. And in verse number 10, Thus shall you speak to Hezekiah, king of Judah, saying, Let not thy God in whom thou trustest deceive thee, saying, Jerusalem shall not be delivered into the hand of the king of Syria. Behold, Thou hast heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all the lands by destroying them utterly. Shalt thou be delivered? Have the gods of the nations delivered them which my fathers have destroyed? As Gozan, Haran, Rezeph, and the children of Eden, which were in Talassar, 
Don't let God deceive you, Hezekiah. We're going to destroy you just like we have everybody else. God's not going to stop us. Your God's not going to be a hindrance to us. And in Daniel chapter number 3, verse number 15, Now if you be ready at what time you hear the sound of the cornet, flute, harp, sackbut, psaltery, and dulcimer, and all kinds of music, you fall down and worship the image which I have made well. But if you worship not, you shall be cast the same hour into the midst of the burning fiery furnace. And who is that God that shall deliver you out of my hands? Boys, there's no God that's going to deliver you out of my hands. I'm Nebuchadnezzar. I'm the king of the world. And so, the hardness of man's heart is astounding. We think it amazing today, the, the thought process of man, and how can people not believe the gospel and the word of God? Well, we've got example after example in the scriptures of people that seen, that witnessed, that uh, saw the works of God, and yet still the hardness and deceit of their heart they did not believe it. Pharaoh, Korah, and here, Jezebel, and even on in the New Testament, all of those that Paul preached to. We shouldn't be astounded nor discouraged that people don't believe. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, if our gospel be hid, it's hid to them that are lost and whom the God of this world hath blinded their minds. People can't see. Their minds are blinded by Satan and by the enemy. Their heart is blinded by the wicked one and we shouldn't be surprised whether they see or not. And you know, we shouldn't be discouraged either. Moses all the works that he wrought, he could have been discouraged. But you know, the plan was from the very beginning that Pharaoh was going to be destroyed. Moses was doing a necessary work. And it wasn't that Pharaoh would believe, but it was that God would prove that he's God above the Egyptians, above the Egyptians' gods, and above Pharaoh himself. Now Jezebel's not going to believe. Should that be a discouragement to Elijah? No, he's doing a work that's going to bring judgment upon Jezebel and upon the house of Ahab and truly upon all of Israel. Satan's power, and he has power, and he's deceived a multitude, and he threatens God's people. Jezebel here is going to threaten Elijah. Pharaoh's threatening Moses. Rabshakeh's threatening Hezekiah. They threatened the disciples, the apostles in the New Testament. But know this, the devil can only do and perform what he's allowed to do and perform. He can't go beyond what the Lord would allow him to. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. He's a roaring lion. He's threatening. He's a liar. 
But know this, he's on a chain today. He is chained and under God's control. And he can only do that that he's allowed to do. So Jezebel, she's not going to believe. She's going to have a hard heart and a stiff neck to the word of Elijah and to the work of God. So when we preach, when we gather, should it discourage us and make us want to quit when people don't believe? It shouldn't be a surprise at all. There's a multitude. The majority of people are not going to hear and are not going to believe the gospel. But may God help us and give us strength to labor onward, to preach the word of God, to live in a manner that's an example unto a lost and dying world, to give our testimony and to work as God would have us to work, knowing this, whether they believe or not, we're working a work for God to the glory of His name. That's all that's on our heart. We'll stop there and pick up next time. I thank everybody for listening. I hope the Word of God's a help to you. We love you. Hope you have a wonderful week and pray for us.